This week on Punch Mountain, finally a remake that captures the thrills, chills, and white-hot sexual chemistry of the original version starring Abbott and Costello. Wake the dead because we're watching The Mummy. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake, and I'm joined as always by the ruggedly good handsome, ruggedly good handsome, we're doing it, Mr. David Hada. My double plus good friend, Mac Blake, how are you, sir? <laughs> Pretty good, I'm just drinking some victory gin or something. What? I don't... I don't even know what's going on. I'm doing okay. I'm holding it together this week, David. That's that's the yeah. best I can do. But David, speaking of holding it together, you know who has a problem doing that? Mummies, because they're so old and decrepit. And we watched one of them. We watched The Mummy, David. That's why they're gift wrapped, so they can keep the surprises inside till Christmas. But yes, we did watch The Mummy from 1999, not the 1932 Universal original. This one's going to be with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss and directed by Stephen Summers, the director of one of the Van Helsings, I think, or something like that. Was there more than one? Not theatrically released. You know, David, I went to Thailand once and we turned on the TV once we arrived at our hotel room. Weary travelers <laughs> on the Thai television set was Van Helsing starring Hugh Jackman. <laughs> and so <laughs> whenever I see... Anything related to Van Helsing, I'm like, ah, to the people of Thailand. In my mind, it's their favorite movie. It's the national movie. It's like their currency. They they spend using Van Helsing. Yeah. But tonight we're talking about The Mummy. Mac, what are your, uh, what are your opening thoughts going into The Mummy? David, I had never seen this movie before. I remember it coming out and I was like, no, thank you. Because David, back in 1999, I thought Brendan Fraser was cheesy. I was not a fan of him. And so I thought he was just like too goofy a dude to be in an action movie. So I was like, ah, no thanks. I'd taken my little sister to go see George of the Jungle. And I think that was like fresh in my mind of just like, ah, this is not for me, man. But watching it now for the first time, I owe you an apology, Brendan Fraser. And I say you because, yes, I know he's a big fan of this podcast, like most people are. But yeah, man, this movie was charming as hell. It was super fun to watch. I mean, obviously, you know, also had like Rachel Wisen in it, who is an amazing actress. This is probably her worst role. <laughs> No, I, I really, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. It was, I, I get everyone's Brendan Fraser love now, I guess. Same here. This is going to be a first watch for me as well. I just, you know, this came out in 1999 at a time when I thought I was too cool for it because I had the same feelings about Brendan Fraser. He was just sort of a goofball, like even taking a look. So this comes out in 1999, also from this year, Blast from the Past and Dudley Do-Right. You know, that's a pretty typical Brendan Fraser year at around this time. And so I was just like, no, thank you. It felt like it was for kids, and I was a I was a man. I was in college. As the years went on, and this was on TNT USA, TBS, like it covered, it ran the gamut of cable channels. This became one of those movies where I would catch it on TV, and I would at least watch it to the commercial. And more often than not, I would flip it after the commercial. But you know, I would still stick around because there was a charm to it. I recognized little chunks here and there. But like you said, Mac, watching this movie for the first time all the way through, this charmed the heck out of me. With relation to the mountain, I don't know. It feels muted at times because it's stifled by the all-ages appeal. But hey, man, that's not my problem. That's nobody's problem. This movie's fun. Uh, I'm going to have a really fun time talking about it. Well, David, everyone knows that you're an action hammer, David. And I say that because there's that phrase that every problem looks like a nail to a hammer. Well, David, every movie that we talk about in this podcast, we're going to talk about in terms of it being an action movie. This movie, I'd say very much, if you have to give it one genre 
uh, I would say horny pharaohs. No, I would say he's not even a pharaoh. He's like a what is he in this? The the mummy. Oh, he's a priest. Yeah, right? there you go. He's a, he's their magic man. But I don't want to stand. But yeah, no, this movie is like definitely adventure. This is a fun adventure movie. However, this is not Adventure Mountain. I mean, in some ways it is, but more specifically, David, it is Punch Mountain, and we are talking about action movies. So, how does the Mummy rank on the definitive? Ranking of action movies, we're going to find out. But David, before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions, right? If you search The Mummy on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions, so we will do some quickly provided answers. David, is The Mummy on Disney? Yes, and his name is Tim Allen. Mac, why did they replace Rachel in The Mummy? She was bitten by a scarab, and that scarab was her agent that said, don't do it. David, why wasn't the same girl in The Mummy 3? Look, you can either make Rise of the Scorpion Kingdom or The Lovely Bones. No one's lucky enough to make both. Mac, did Tom Cruise make a mummy too? Is this a question about Shelley Miscavige, David? Because I haven't found her body yet. <laughs> All right, David. Before we watch bold adventurers defy the will of the gods to discover ancient artifacts, let's check in with two friends who are defying the will of the gods to find the perfect meatball sub. It's a friendship check-in, David. Our friendship, us. How are you doing, David Hada? Did you see my face light up when you mentioned meatball subs? That's how wired I am to meatball subs at all times. Did you find a place that in your mind has your favorite meatball sub? Oh, that's a really good question. I feel like I had one recently that I was like, oh, this is real good. And I do not remember where it is. I will say that Thundercloud subs in Austin, it's definitely not the best meatball sub, but it is what I want when I want a meatball sub, which is just like, David, you remember the movie Point Break? Of course I do. Gary Busey's character, Pappas asks for a meatball sandwich, which is weird. And he says, Utah, give me two. And then when Keanu Reeves' character, Johnny Utah, brings him those meatball sandwiches, he describes them as roadkill. And that's exactly how I like my meatball sandwiches, which is just dripping in sauce. Like, there's no way to eat them without getting disgusting. I have to eat them by myself with no one looking at me. And Thundercloud subs, free shout out for you. They, They check that box for me. What about you, David? It's the kind of sandwich you would define as a real problem. I think my I, my most reliable meatball sub is going to be Potbelly. I, I just I consistently like it and never lets me down. Uh, yeah, Potbelly is going to be the way to go for me. Look, I know there's a lot of people right now, maybe in the Chicagoland area, who are screaming at their Zunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just like, how dare you like Potbelly? You need to go eat it, blah, blah, blah. Fly us out there. We'll go on a sub tour. You think I won't? I will. Oh, my God. I'll be your sub. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Dom me. <laughs> I'll even dress fancy for the occasion, David. And look, I'm not a tough guy. I'll be your sissy sub, okay? <laughs> yeah. Choke me with a meatball, daddy. One of these days, I'm going to look up these terms I keep saying. <laughs> but, David, enough sub talk. How are you? Get out of your sub space. I got nothing. I was really hoping that would carry us through the segment. I'm just kind of coasting on this week. So how about you? Man, speaking of not thinking about stuff I put in my body, I just tricked myself into drinking a diet soda, David. Oh, congratulations. I know. A diet soda. Do you like diet soda? I think it's the fucking disgusting. No, I had a, I kind of hit a choice where it was like, you could either switch, you could either downgrade to diet soda or you could stop drinking soda. And for the most part, I've stopped drinking soda. Yeah, me too. However, they now have this soda at uh, both my local grocery store and my local Target. And it's like a, it claims to be like a new kind of soda because it supports digestive health, prebiotics, botanicals, plant fiber. And I'm like, all right, cool, low calories. Oh, grape, that sounds, and I t- it's delicious. And then I was like, wait a second. And I was looking at like what it's made of and I was like, motherfucker, you just slapped some like Whole Foods language on there. And I'm like, mm, interesting. I got tricked into drinking like a, like a diet grape Fanta is what I'm drinking right now. And I gotta tell you, Diet Grape Fanta Heads, you're right. It's delicious. Now I can't remember. There was a 
brand that I liked for a while that was making kombucha knockoffs of soda where it was like Dr. Booch or like, you know, Booch beer. And I really liked those and I haven't had those in years. So you know what? It's okay, Mac. Be adventurous. Try new things. Oh, David, I got an email I should tell you about. Last week, do you remember I was telling you that I there's two different Joshes, I think, that said hi to me? And I couldn't remember if it was the same Josh who was gaslighting me or two different Joshes. Well, one or the one, uh, Josh L. sent me another message. And he said that he just listened to the Punchman episode of The Road Warrior. And you and David, that's me, we were talking about the lack of cannibalism. Well, he'd like to introduce us to 2008's Doomsday, starring Rona Mitra, Bob Hoskins, and Malcolm McDowell that definitely has the cannibalism you guys were yearning for. (laughs) First of all, Josh, the fact that that's your takeaway was amazing. No, but seriously. (laughs) Have you seen Doomsday, David? I have. That's going to be the follow-up to, or not the follow-up, but the guy who made The Descent. That was going to be his next movie after that. Oh, I forgot that. Yes, Neil Marshall. Neil Marshall, thank you. I was going to call him Rob Marshall, and I was like, wait, that's the guy who directed Chicago and Little Mermaid. That's not right. Yeah, Neil Marshall, you know, he for a while seemed like he might like be it. Like He had a lot of buzz behind him. The Descent, man, that's a top 10 horror movie for me. That thing is fucking creepy, especially like because it's about uh, people that go uh, cave diving or exploring or something, and just being in like that small a space, too. It's like he... (laughs) He reached into my nightmare index and go, oh, here's an idea. <laughs> yeah, Neil Marshall, he also directed the new Hellboy. And I believe he directed a lot of the very action-heavy episodes of Game of Thrones. Okay. I'm not going to look it up. It's my toxic trait. But I think he directed <laughs> the um, the battle that took place on the the wall. The, uh, you know, the watchers on the wall of that episode. Was that the one that was too dark for everybody? No, he might have directed that one too. I don't know. <laughs> okay, gotcha. But, um, but yeah, he was an exciting director. I remember the Doomsday takes a real hard turn right in the middle. But... But Neil Marshall, yeah, I'd be interested in checking out one of his movies. I would be interested in watching Doomsday again. I remember watching it, wanting it to be as good as The Descent, and remember it being brutal and bloody, but not having the connective tissue I wanted. But heck, I wouldn't mind watching it again. He also made a movie with Michael Fassbender called, uh, I believe, Centurion. I said believe like I just uh, thought of it off the top of my head, but I definitely looked it up. And I remember that movie being a lot of fun, too. So yeah, you know what? If it's Doomsday or if it's something else, we'll definitely get a Neil Marshall movie. Uh, and at some point, that's a great idea. Thank you, Josh L., for the suggestion. David, I, I don't know if my eyes are deceiving me. Is that a dusty tomb in front of us? Are we going in? Matt, get your scarab repellent. We're going in. Oh, no, my scarab repellent is actually scarab butter. It's They love it. Okay, David, in case someone has never seen The Mummy before, like us, or if someone has not seen it in a while, just a level set, can you give the back of the box description? You bet I can. Deep in the Egyptian desert, a handful of people searching for a long-lost treasure have just unearthed a 3,000-year-old legacy of terror. Combining the thrills of a rousing adventure with the suspense of Universal's legendary 1932 horror classic, The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser, is a true non-stop action epic, filled with dazzling visual effects, top-notch talent, and superb storytelling. 1999, 124 minutes, directed by Stephen Sommers, rated (sighs) PG-13. David, this back of the box description makes the same mistake the Seven Samurai description did, which is too many details. One in particular. Do you think anyone sees legendary 1932 horror classic and that gets them interested? Like, ooh, whoa, a 67-year-old movie. There was a wild time between this and like, I would probably say the other end of this tentpole is going to be the Keanu Reeves Day the Earth Stood Still, where it's referencing a movie from the 50s that was a faded memory in the 90s, but they still released it in like 2006. Like, I have no idea why producers thought reaching this far back for nostalgia was such a good idea. I mean, maybe if they said like Universal's Legendary Monster or something like that, 
people would be like, oh, this movie's got a pedigree. It's not some piece of shit mummy they just picked off the side of the road. This is a this is a mummy with some lineage. The thing that it does help with is it does help put you in the frame of mind of a 1932 type movie. So if you're expecting like a gritty reboot of the mummy franchise with blood and guts and gore, you're not going to get that. It's going to stay pretty true to the 1930s original. So it's not necessarily like a, a mummy reboot with like, I don't know, like Tom Cruise, Jake Johnson and uh, Russell Crowe. Is that what you're saying? What are you going to sneak Dr. Jekyll in there? Come on. Uh, no, David, I'm going to give this description a thumbs down because by mentioning the 32 horror classic, this description is saying this movie's for mummy elites. And as you know, David, I'm a mummy slob. Okay, I'm not a mummy snob, I'm a mummy slob. I'm, I'm sick of these mummy coastal elites. All right, how's this movie start? All right, Mac, this movie is going to start in Thebes, Egypt, 1290 BC, where high priest Imhotep, played by Arnold Vosloo, has an affair with Anksu Namun, played by Patricia Velasquez the mistress of Pharaoh Seti I. They kill the Pharaoh after he discovers their relationship. Imhotep flees while Anksu Namun kills herself, believing he can resurrect her. Imhotep and his priests steal her corpse and travel to Hamunaptra, the city of the dead. The resurrection ritual is stopped by the Pharaoh's bodyguards, the Magi. Imhotep's priests are mummified alive, while Imhotep himself is tortured, cursed, and buried alive with flesh-eating scarabs at the feet of a statue of the god Anubis. The Magi are sworn to prevent Imhotep's return. So, David, right away when this movie starts, I got to admit, I thought the opening graphics of this movie looked real good. That first shot of ancient Egypt, I don't know if it's just my TV's a piece of shit or whatever, but I was like, you know, for graphics that are this old, these are looking, they're in pretty good shape. That's going to be the running theme throughout this movie. The graphics are not outdated. They're just old, if I'm allowed to split hairs. Like, they're pretty good for the time. I, I imagine if I had seen this in 1999, I would have been pretty impressed. Now, when the actual title of the movie appears, The Mummy, it's like, oh, there we go. There's some real shitty, you know, CGI for you. That's what I'm expecting. So, David, here we get like a love story, I guess, between, uh, what's his name? What's the mummy's name? Uh, the mummy's going to be Imhotep, played by Arnold Vosnu. Of course, they chant it several times. Imhotep and Aksunamun are just knocking whatever that not boots, I, not maybe sandals, I guess. And yeah, she, you know, she's got this like body paint on, right? Mm -hmm. And pretty much like nothing else, just kind of like body paint. And so Imhotep like grabs her shoulder, but because she's got this body paint, he like smears the body paint. And then when the pharaoh comes in, he sees the smeared body paint. And because she's unable to be like, I rubbed against something stupid. Come on, idiot, think. Uh, he's like, oh, you're you're fucking someone, and they kill this pharaoh. And then the voiceover is like, Imhotep and his priests. And I was like, where are his priests? Uh, but David, there was like some dudes who are like covered in gold, like body paint, mm -hmm. like full on body paint, as if they're a fan of like a, a golden Philadelphia based team, which I don't know what movie I've seen or something, but I saw those dudes in gold body paint. I'm like, oh, those are eunuchs. Like, I was like, why? What? I don't know. Do I? Is there some sort of precedent for that in another film? Help me out. But no, those are his priests. So I'm seeing Anksu Namun, played by Patricia Velasquez, who, if you remember, is Marta from Arrested Development, or she was at least one of the Martas. David, which Marta? The first one or the second one? The second one. Oh, interesting. And so my, my first thought was, well, hello, Marta. But I was reminded that I have it on good authority that this was a formative movie for a lot of people. The Patricia Velasquez of it, the Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz of it. This was a low-key horny movie, and once you tap into that frequency, it's an excellent movie. You know, if somebody told me that The Mummy was their bisexual awakening, I would, I would okay, I'd believe that. Someone told me that about uh, Batman and Robin. Poison Ivy came out, someone's like, I'm different now, which I, <laughs> that just, honestly, that's a little bit beautiful uh, when I think about it. 
the Pharaoh's bodyguards, you'd think that after the Pharaoh died, he was murdered, that the bodyguards would chill. But I guess they're committed to guarding that body, even if it's just a body. So Imhotep and Anksunamun, they kill the Pharaoh. And like, the guards are coming. We got to get out of here. And Anksunamun says, hey, Imhotep, you get out of here. I'll stay because once they kill me, you can resurrect me. Which, whoa, they're faithful people here. That's <laughs> that's a lot riding on this. But sure enough, he's like just about to uh, resurrect her when the bodyguards like fuck up this plan and they mummify him. And like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to use a curse that we've never used before. It's like the worst fucking curse, which is like we wrap you, we cut off your tongue. Uh, they might have done something else to him. And then they bury him with flesh-eating scarabs at, at the ba- bottom of Anubis. And like, okay, but if he gets out, though, if he gets out, he, he's basically a god. Like, that was like somehow their weird bargain. Why risk it, assholes? Just cut off his head. Oh, ancient Egyptians. Yeah, just kill him. You're you're giving him this special treatment where it's like, oh, you're going to suffer a torture unlike any other. But in 3,000 years, you'll have a reset. Like, you'll get a one-up and be able to do it all over again. It's like, that seems unfair. You know what, though? Maybe the ancient Egyptians were like, hey, by the time somebody digs up this Imhotep and he ends up becoming like an evil god, it's probably going to be some white dude who's like raiding our country, stealing its wealth of natural history to put in some British museum. Yeah, fuck those dudes. In which case, well played, ancient Egyptians. My hat is off to you. (laughs) The living will envy the dead by the time you wake up again. But this opening introduction, this prologue, this is fun. I, I really appreciated it when Aksunamun and Imhotep both kill the pharaoh, who I thought was initially Ray Wise. I was disappointed to find out that it wasn't. I was hoping this this movie had that kind of money to just put him in like a one-day role. You see the murder happen in silhouette, and you're going to see that a lot throughout this movie. This movie's establishing itself as a very bloodless, almost literally bloodless movie, I think. But if you can, again, this is going to be one of those things. If you can get into the frequency of that movie, it's going to be a heck of a movie. You know what I did not notice for the most part? But yeah, you're right. In fact, even when uh, someone gets an arm cut off later in the movie, granted that person is a mummy, uh, there's not like a pouring of blood. But I guess that makes sense, though. Maybe his blood is dust at this point. But before we move on, David, Arnold Vosloo, who we saw in Hard Target, uh, he's the mummy in this movie, the titular mummy. How do you feel about Arnold Vosloo in this thing? I like him. It suits him. He's a man of few words, as we learned from Hard Target. He's a formidable presence. I kind of wish he was a little more buff. He just has that, like, turn-of-the-century look to him. Yeah, I oddly had the same thought. Like, he he plays, like, smarmy evil pretty well, like he did in Hard Target. And yeah, he's a formidable presence. But yeah, I kind of wish he just cranked up the sexiness a little bit. Crank it up and make me crank it up, you know what I mean? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. But from there, we're going to flash forward to 1926 Cairo, where Jonathan Carnahan, played by John Hanna, presents his sister Evelyn, played by Rachel Weisz. She's going to be a librarian, an aspiring Egyptologist working for museum curator Dr. Terrence Bay, played by Eric Avari. Jonathan's going to give her an intricate box and map that lead to Habanoptra. Jonathan reveals he stole the box from an American adventurer, Rick O'Connell, played by Brendan Fraser, who discovered the city while in the French Foreign Legion. Evelyn and Jonathan find Rick in a local prison and make a deal with him to lead them to the city, bribing prison warden Gad Hassan, played by Omid Jajali, to free him. So yeah, David, we meet John Hanna, who I was kind of, eh, to see, and Rachel Weisz, who was like, yay, to see. And they worked in this library, and the museum curator, Dr. Terrence Bay, played by Eric Avari. David, he was, uh, he's like in Independence Day. He was the guy who worked at SETI, the, uh, the you know, the the satellite dish farm or whatever. And then 
Wasn't he also in Stargate? I think he was. Yeah. All I remember is he banged his head on the bunk beds in yeah. Independence Day. And he's like, what's with the golf balls? Um, this dude was a 90s king. You got to give it up for this guy. I don't know what happened to him after this movie. I assume he retired uh, happily accomplishing everything he set out to do in life. But yeah, I was ex- I was overly excited to see him in this movie. Now, Rachel Wise, when she came on screen, I was watching the movie with my feral wife, who, who really liked this movie when it came out. And I was like, hey, feral wife, why does Rachel Wise look bad? And she said that uh, her eyebrows were very thin. It was very, it's very 90s to have like super thin eyebrows at the time. And once she pointed out, yes, it is weird. It is like someone shaved 90% of Rachel Wise's eyebrows. Look, still beautiful, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that she's not attractive or whatever. But just with my modern sensibility struck me as something being off. There was something off, but for me, it wasn't quite so much a negative. She just looked animated. Like she really, when you first see Evelyn in this movie, she looks like a Disney princess. Like she's in the library. She's clutching books to her chest. Uh, She has a fun little moment where, you know, she's on the ladder between shelves and she ends up knocking all the shelves over. Like it's a very cute way to establish this character. It's also satisfying as the movie goes on to realize she's never really clumsy. It was just a fun bit at the beginning. She's not she's not a hindrance in on this adventure at all. She's very capable. Yeah, so the shelves in this library are very tall and they're arranged in a circle. And one of them knocks over and then it knocks over the other 14. They they fall like dominoes. And these these are like, I don't know how many shelves high, 12 or something like that. And it makes it a gigantic mess. I'd say when the first two knock over, you're like, no, 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 no. But then like four or five, you're like, eh, what are you going to do? But then when it starts knocking over that double digits, at that point, David, I'm a fucking anarchist. You know what I mean? I'm like, everything's got to go down. So that's what I'm saying is librarians, be careful. There's one knocked over shelf away from just burning that whole place to ashes. Once it makes the turn, that's when you call people over. Because, yeah, two or three, I feel terrible. But, like, once you round the bend, get everybody, get over here. But after she knocks over all these shelves, we are going to see Dr. Terrence Bay. He's going to come out and he's going to have some sick historical burns on Evelyn. First of all, he's going to be like, Sons of the Pharaohs, give me any other plague besides this one. And, you know, uh, intimating that she's worse than than a plague that destroyed humanity. But then he says, you know, when Ramses destroyed Syria, that was an accident because she thinks, you know, she just did She had an accident. But uh, man, Dr. Bay, unrelenting with the historical burns. Yeah, and I didn't get a one of them. Uh, congratulations, <laughs> Dr. Bay. Maybe feel like a stupid idiot. But David, I skipped over the first action set piece of this movie, which, as you mentioned, we see the French Foreign Legion led by somebody who immediately takes off, thus putting Brendan Fraser's character, Rick O'Connell, in charge. And we see his like right-hand man at this point named Benny. And I say at this point because he also quickly deserts Rick O'Connell. And Benny David, played by Kevin J. O'Connor, who as soon as I saw this dude, I was like, this guy seems familiar to me. And I was like, he seems like kind of a wormy, sad sack character. And then I remember, oh yeah, in There Will Be Blood, Somebody came up to Daniel Plainview pretending to be his brother. And when Daniel Plainview found him out, this dude begged for his life like a fucking worm. And I was like, it was this guy, Kevin Kevin J. O'Connor. That's wild. Wow, what a fucking loser. I wonder if he's just that way in real life because he's he's playing enough loser roles in my estimation. Oh my goodness, Mac. Benny, one of the all-time shittiest characters in movie history. I do not like Benny from the start. I will not like Benny. Benny straight up sucks. Every time we saw Benny, I thought it was going to be the last time we saw Benny. Because I was like, okay, you know, this dude is, is, he's just like begging to have like a sandbag fall on his head and be like, adios, Benny. He's gone. But he just, he fucking stuck around. And at first I was like, ooh, are they pretending this dude is uh, like native to 
Egypt or something, but it says, sometimes when he talks, it'll say like, uh, speaking in Hungarian uh, under the uh, captions. So there you go. French Foreign Legion. There's a lot of people running to join it. But David, if you're like, why is the French Foreign Legion fighting in some rando place in Egypt? We find out later it's because the Legion heard about this treasure city out there. So this entire like squad basically was like, let's go out into the desert. Because if you're wondering who they were fighting out there, they were fighting basically these like protectors of Hamunaptra, right? Played by a very handsome man that we'll meet later. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's it's really just a story of people wanting to be left alone and then some foreign invaders come in and don't leave them alone. So they got to fight back. So yeah. But this action set piece, it's a lot of fun. I'll tell you what, there's going to be a lot of stuff in this movie that's very neat. I'm not going to have a lot of mark out moments. I'll tell you that right now. But just throughout this movie, I'm charmed by it. And one of those things is going to be this action set piece. Two things this movie does really, really well. Horsework and firework. And this is going to be a first example of... They're corralling a lot of horses in the scene. They're dealing with a lot of performers. And it's still a really fun and exhilarating way to start this this movie. So I'm I'm into it. Yeah, I remember when we got one of the wider shots of the scene. I was like, oh, fuck. This, this movie had a little bit of budget behind it. Because... You know, nowadays, most of those horses and riders would be CGI, but they must have got a good deal on, on horse extras for this thing. For the most part, I found the action in this movie, like, serviceable. Not until maybe, like, later in the movie did they try to go for something stylish, but for the most part, the action kind of just, like, told the story. And it, this is another thing where it's like, this action scene worked for me, but yeah, I did not mark out, I did not come close to marking out, but I, I didn't at any point be like, oh, this is bad or this is boring. Uh, yeah, it was entertaining and kept the story moving along. And just as you think... The Rick O'Connell, by the way, he's cornered by this army that you think he's about to get shot. All of a sudden, the army like, oh, we're out of here because they were spooked by something in Hamunaptra. And is this where he turns around and he sees like a face in the sand? Yeah, this is where initially you think it's going to be like a Tremors creature coming out of the sand, but it's really just the sand shifting and this giant face comes out. Again, this is going to be one of those neat moments, but like I would really like an updated CGI version of this movie. Some of this stuff just it lands a little flat. Still cool. Still neat. But uh, it could have been something bigger. But flash forward, and we meet Evelyn's brother, Jonathan, played by that British dude who I guess is in like stuff. And this guy is kind of like a drunk. He's just like a party and a gambler. And he reveals like, hey, I stole this artifact, pickpocketed this artifact after somebody was like beating me in cards. And this artifact is like some weird funky key. But David, there's a map inside. And is it to treasure? You bet your fucking ass. They show this map to the library, uh, the head librarian, the curator, right? Dr. Bay. And Dr. Bay very obviously burns the map and is like, oops, the map accidentally caught fire. It's a good thing, too. Uh, people die trying to find this fake church. It's not real. Don't go find it. See, Mac, I'm chagrined that you say he obviously did it because I'm watching this movie. And, you know, he's he's poo-pooing the idea of, of this map being legitimate. He's just, oh, this is all fairy tales and hokum. And then it's on fire. And I'm like, you idiot, you're going to stop them from getting the treasure. I'm such a dummy. I fell for this movie. But uh, I, I wouldn't. I don't know. If I'm seven or eight years old, this isn't as obvious, but I'm also 43. David, I rewound it. <laughs> because I was like, wait, did he burn that on purpose? Because he's looking suspicious now. And I rewound it. I was like, oh, he very clearly, as he's talking to them, is holding it by the fire. But yes, the first time around, it got me too. <laughs> uh, mummy, well played, I guess. Even when it burns, he's like, oh, well, uh, it's for the best, I'm sure. And it's like, no, this was literally the best chance you've ever had at collecting this treasure. You have a map. Don't just dismiss this. But David, the map was only partially burned. And they're like, well, you know what? Let's go find the dude who you stole this from, Jonathan. And it turns out this is Brendan Fraser's character, Rick O'Connell. And in the three years that has transpired since we last saw this dude, he's now in jail. And he's going to be hung. Like, is it that same day? 
Uh, later that day, yeah, she came just in time after three years. And Rick O'Connell punches Jonathan, the brother, in the face. And then he looks at Rachel Wise's character, Evelyn, and he goes, tell you what, lady, I'll help you out if you get me out of here because they're about to kill me. But before he does that, David, he, he uh, steals a smooch. He goes in and just like kisses her without uh, consent. And I got to say, I, I mean, I guess that was, was that charming in 1999? Because it was real gross. I think it was charming in 1932, and I think it was it was on a fine line in 1999. He does give a pretty decent justification later, where he's like, "Look, I was about to be hanged. What did you expect me to do?" But yeah, I I, I was I was policing this one a little too hard while I was watching it for the first time. I like that this dude's morality is like, "I was about to get murdered. I might as well just be a fucking creep." But yeah, it was it was weird and. The fact that later in the movie, she's like, oh, I can't stop thinking about the kiss. Just fucking, that's a, yeah, I'll do my, one of my punch-ups right here, which is get rid of this fucking kiss, because it's such a weird tone. And again, the fact that she, like, fixates on it is like, you know, she sort of falls for him. And this is that first domino is, uh, that's a big no thanks. But David, you're right, he is set to be murdered, (laughs) murdered, whatever, executed. And so Evelyn is negotiating with the prison warden about uh, Rick O'Connell's release. And they're negotiating David while he's being hung from the neck, which I, you know what? I got to say, that was kind of a funny scene. It was a funny scene. The negotiation was really funny. In fact, if we could play a little bit of the interaction between Evelyn and the warden where they're agreeing on terms here. Yes. And if you cut him down, we will give you 10%. 50. 20. 40. 30. 25. Ah. Deal. Ah. That's charming. That's really fucking cute. It is cute. And of course, another creep that Evelyn encounters. <laughs> that is good. But if you're wondering if this guy is going to get murdered later, oh, yeah, yeah, he will. But yes, Rick O'Connell is free, and now they are ready to go on an adventure. That's right. Rick's going to guide Evelyn and her party to the city, and they're going to encounter a band of American treasure hunters led by Rick's cowardly acquaintance, Benny Gabor. Despite being warned to leave by Ardeth Bay, played by Oded Fair, leader of the Magi, the two expeditions continue their excavations. Evelyn searches for the Book of Amun-Ra, made of pure gold, but instead of finding it, she stumbles upon Imhotep's remains. The team of Americans, meanwhile, discover the Black Book of the Dead, accompanied by canopic jars carrying Anksun Amun's preserved organs. Warden Hassan and several diggers are killed during the excavation. They make it sound like a news story, just like after the fact. No, they get murdered by this mummy. So yeah, the warden who made the deal to free Rick O'Connell, he's like, we made a deal, I get a percentage of your findings, I'm going to come along in this expedition to uh you know protect my investment he might as well just turn to the camera and said and to give someone for the bad guys to kill because this dude (laughs) he definitely signed his murder permission slip uh already so he's a very murderable person in this thing there's a couple scenes where our heroes are surrounded by like three people they're like we're all gonna make it right it's like ah no you're not like you clearly are some red shirts here here's the gross moment i had with the warden because you're absolutely right he he gets his permission slip signed pretty quick And as he's getting on the boat to join them, you're like, oh, all right, here we go. But he's this short, stocky, kind of frumpy person. And when I first looked at him, I thought, ooh, plump. Like he was going to get cannibalized or something. And I don't know (laughs) where that came from. So we're going to start this chunk, more or less. They're going to be on the boat headed out to the City of the Dead or to look for the City of the Dead. And we're going to see this boat. And I had some issues with it at first because it looks kind of rickety. You know, it it very much looks like a set and they're on a soundstage. But the more time I spent with it, the more I kind of got enamored by it. Like, there's a fanciful look to these sets. They are really taking the bones of the 1932 movie, the limitations of filmmaking that it might have had, and just 
ratcheting it up a little bit. So I'm I'm really okay with this. Yeah, before they get on the boat, Rick O'Connell shows back up. And David, apparently he went to a spa because, you know, we last time we saw him, he had a rope around his neck. Now he's cleaned up. He's shaving. He's got a haircut. Stud alert, David. Uh, there's a stud. Be on alert. It's him. Thank you for reminding me. I was wondering what Chance from HT meant in my notes. That's going to be Chance from Hard Target. This was the very much like the reveal of Chance was like, oh, who's that? Yeah, but Chance was dirty like the whole movie. It's just like if Chance cut his fucking mullet. But it was, but the Yancey Butler, like, you know, lowering of the sunglasses moment. Oh, you got to tip shades if you see a stud like uh, Chance Boudreaux <laughs> strutting around, of course. But while they're on the boat, this is where we're going to run into the other Americans. These four people will get to know as the movie goes on, but not learn much about. I kind of, in my mind, compartmentalize them as this low-rent league of extraordinary gentlemen because there's one guy with a fez, there's one guy with a cowboy hat, there's a very professorial guy. I don't know, it's just this ragtag bunch of idiots, but they're being led by Benny, who continues to suck. Yeah, it was kind of an odd coincidence, the fact that there's these two teams both trying to find Hamunaptra at the same time when there did not seem to be any kind of like time window. It wasn't like, oh, the Nazis are trying to find the grail. We got to find the grail too. But yes, Benny is leading a team of just killables. Let's just call them what they are. They're very killables. (laughs) They are there to be murdered by bad guys. And don't worry, you're not disappointed. They'll be murdered there. But yeah, again, Benny shows up and we're like, what the fuck? But David, they're not the only ones on the boat. The Medjai, the people that are trying to you know, keep the city of Hamonatra safe. They're on the boat. They want the map. They want this key that Jonathan got off of Rick O'Connell because that key, as we learned earlier, it can open the tomb of Imhotep and he's now a superpowered god. So we, they definitely don't want that falling into the wrong hands. But David, during this scuffle, the boat lights on fire. It's made out of the most burnable materials in the world. So the boat burns, but everyone is able to get off the boat, including horses. No wuss warning in this movie. Yeah, this is going to be a very exciting sequence for me. It's going to start with Evelyn in her in her quarters. She She's trying to read, but she can't concentrate. Oh, that kiss was so good from that condemned criminal. And then she's going to, you know, splash some cold water on her face. I, I think, I remember. Uh, she's going to look in the mirror. And there's going to be a jump scare. There's going to be a Magi right behind her. And then the room's going to suddenly go up in flames. There's a moment here. And, I, you know, throughout this whole first chunk of the movie, I'm struggling with it in terms of... It wasn't connecting with me. I'll be perfectly honest with you at first. And I was wondering why it's not connecting. I'm enjoying it. I'm seeing stuff that I would enjoy. But I think at this moment, I realized I'm too hung up on this movie in comparison to Indiana Jones. And it's around this point of the movie that I'm realizing, well, that comparison might be, Indiana Jones might be too stuffy of a comparison with this movie. If I'm being honest with myself, this movie feels a lot more like an all ages general audience's army of darkness. And realizing that Rick O'Connell plays better as Ash than an Indiana Jones type completely unlocked this movie for me. So there's going to be a part right now when Evie's room is starting to burn where you see the key being engulfed by flames. And so one of the Magi is going to reach out to retrieve it. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, so they know that people are making these comparisons. This is an homage to Raiders of the Lost Ark. But instead of grabbing it and burning his hand, the Magi gets shoved into the this couch that's just on fire. He turns into this flaming human being. This is going to be my first mark out moment because it's the movie recognizing what it is, but also saying, well, we're not that. We're something else entirely. David, you mentioned the Indiana Jones comparison. I think that comparison is kind of unavoidable. And one of the downsides of this podcast is it's made me kind of into, well, the, the kind of asshole that I'll describe here. You know, some people watch this movie and they'll enjoy it. But now because of this, I watch a movie to be like, 
what was Rick O'Connell's motivation? Like, what's his character <laughs> arc? It's like, God, really? Just like the people on the way home after seeing a movie, just like, shut up. It's just, look, Spider-Man punched Dr. Octopus, who gives a fuck? I don't, why do I got to know about his emotional journey? You know, the fact that Indiana Jones, he's like kind of boring, right? Like he's a uh, archaeology professor in some school. He can't even be able to finish out a fucking class before jumping out of a window to go uh, fight some Nazis. But, you know, when he's on these quests, it's usually because he's like, oh, I need to find this artifact because I'm a nerd. But Rick O'Connell, it's like, why is he on this quest? And it's like, oh, because this lady saved my life and I told her I would. And he's not he's not an archaeologist that's like interested in finding the truth. He's just interested in completing a mission. Now, while it does have, you might say, like a dumber vibe than Indiana Jones, it, it does to me signal like, hey, we're in this for fun. Uh, we're not trying to make this movie smart at all. You know, that someone might feel like it's a criticism of the movie. I don't think this movie is stupid. I think this movie is a well-made, very fun movie. Uh, so yes, that was my roundabout way of saying, I like it so far. <laughs> yeah, same. It, it's tough to compare it to a movie on the AFI list. You know, it's it, it really does get to be apples and oranges with this one. So I'm enjoying this movie. But everyone makes it off the boat okay. And at some point, there's uh, two different sides of this river, two different shores. And O'Connell and his crew, our heroes, make it to one side. And then Benny and the Killables make it to the other side. And they have this exchange. Hey! It looks to me like I've got all the horses! Hey, Benny! Looks to me like you're on the wrong side of the river! Shit. Dude, I wanted to include that audio because for some reason my feral wife, that line stuck with her. Like, she was like, oh, my friends and I would quote that all the time, which is insane. <laughs> like, did you often find yourself on the side of a river as opposed to a... Fr- I don't know. But anyway, there you go. It's the line delivery. I'll I'll meet her on that one. The wrong side of the river. It reminded me a lot of, if you remember in Uncle Buck, when the niece's boyfriend is in the trunk of Uncle Buck's car and they open up the trunk and they're like, all right, well, you, could you apologize to her? And he's like, I'm sorry, asshole. And it's like, sometimes it's the line delivery. And I, I, I buy that with this one. Was the boyfriend's name Roach? It was a bug as in spray. Bug. There you go. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I watched that movie in the last year or parts of it for some reason. But yeah, David, when they arrive at like this uh, Egyptian town, it's like resupply before they go off into the desert. Evelyn, who I guess her clothes got wet, had to buy some new clothes. Or I guess she was in her, her night clothes when they had to board the boat. And David, uh, lucky for all of us, this Egyptian town had a strumpet store because <laughs> Evelyn comes out in a very sheer outfit for a country of uh, conservative religious types. Uh, they uh, are surprised to see that these clothes were available. Well, I'll tell you what, Mac, I would like to thank this movie for introducing my girlfriend to Black Mesh. Uh, the the influence it has had on, on her wardrobe over the years, uh, job well done. Thank you very much, The Mummy. The Mummy, more influential than some people know. Yeah, so everyone's doing their excavating. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen go off and do their thing. And then we're, you know, we've got Rick and Evie in their team. Evie's setting up this mirror and we're you're kind of like, what's that ancient mirror for? And it turns out she angles it in such a way that it connects with all these other ancient mirrors in this tomb or in this temple. And it illuminates the room. I don't think I've ever seen that in a movie. This was very fun and neat. Again, more neat stuff in this movie. Yeah, it does feel kind of like a, a Tomb Raider level, like sort of like a puzzle. That Lara Croft had to had to solve. And then they go about finding and digging and exploring. And then the warden goes off on his own and he's like, oh, look at these. Some bejeweled scarab beetles. 
like clearly, oh my God, it's like, hey, stupid, you might as well have been like, what's inside these grenades? Like just, they might as well have like uh, skull and crossbones on them. It's like stupid, don't fuck around with it. But he fucks around with it, David. And of course, a flesh-eating scarab comes out, instantly crawls inside of him. And then it's like traveling around underneath his skin. And David, this CGI effect was bad. Because imagine if something was like crawling underneath your skin, it'd be just like tearing up your body. It'd be so gross. But this was like a little CGI, like cartoon ball that was kind of like traveling over his bod until it uh, got to his brain and uh, chomped him. It was a, a Tom and Jerry-like welt for after hitting yourself with a hammer. This was one of those moments where I kind of wish the movie had a little more production budget or a little more leeway to do some stuff. I would have liked to have seen this as a practical effect, but again, then maybe that would have been too gross and or too real for this movie. So I'm not, I'm very careful not to impose things on this movie that it doesn't want. You know, I didn't think about that. That is true. I think if you wanted to have any sort of realistic flesh eating bug in this movie, we're, we're hitting hard R pretty fast. Well, I don't need it to be graphic, but in this case, I do need it to be satisfying because... The warden's already signed his permission slip. I would like to see him die. The fact that he's got a flesh-eating scarab inside of his body is potentially satisfying, but he ultimately ends up dying by running into a wall and just never waking up. Like, I wanted a kablooey, or at the very least, a kersplat. I wanted something out of this. But David, I guess the whistle blew, and it's quitting time. And so even the League of Extraordinary Killable Gentlemen, and also our heroes, they're like, oh, let's all settle down for a sleep. And we'll all just get a big rest and we won't be attacked at all in the night. Oh, no, but here come the Magi. Uh, they're going to raid the camp. This is more good firework, more good horsework. This is another solid set piece. Yeah, and the, the Magi are attacking and they kill some of the treasure hunters. And then the treasure hunters kill a lot of the Magi. Benny does not die. Again, I 100% expected like, oh, Benny will die in this scene. Because that's how I feel about every scene with Benny. But then at some point, the Magi are like, hey, no more bloodshed, all right? Leave this place or die. We're going to go home for the night. Real casual. Like, if you just killed three of my friends, I was like, you know what? You've, you've learned enough, all right? Sure, three of my best friends are died. I've known them for my entire life. As long as you guys leave tomorrow, we're cool. This guy's got a real, real laid-back way of living and dying. This was one of the more bananas tonal shifts in the movie because you had this very serious moment and Ardath, played by Oded Fair, is leading this group. And he's like, all right, I'm giving you, basically, I'm giving you 24 hours, you know, you cannot be here. You have to go home. And so the camp is just like, anyways. And so the next scene, like Evie's getting drunk and flirting with Rick. It's like, okay, I guess that didn't matter too much to you. Different time back then, David, I guess. <laughs> but Evie and Rick and the rest of the camp are going to be having, you know, a few drinks. They're going to be cutting loose. I guess they are leaving tomorrow. So why not have a party? But drunk Evie is very charming here. You know, she's doing the slurring. She's doing the, you know, what's a place like you doing in a girl like this kind of thing. I like their chemistry. I like Rachel Weisz and Brendan Fraser together. I think it's a winning duo. Yeah, I like it too. But then the next day they're going to, you know, after they've had their night of fun, they're going to get back to work and they're going to dig out the sarcophagus. They're going to pull out the sarcophagus, open it up, and there's going to be something a little off about this mummy. It's not decomposed. It's still pretty well maintained. In fact, Jonathan and Rick struggle to find the word... Let's go ahead and play, because I, I really don't feel comfortable saying this. God, I hate it when these things do that. Is he supposed to look like that? No, I've never seen a mummy look like this before. He's, he's still... still... Juicy. juicy. Yes. Mac, I never want to hear a mummy, dead thing, anything really, described as juicy. 
I did not care for this. Uh, yeah, it's a unless that word appears on someone's ass in a velour jumpsuit, I probably don't want to see the word juicy. <laughs> but David, that's not all. There was uh, what's up with this mummy. There was claw marks inside the sarcophagus, meaning this mummy, when it was buried, it was buried alive. That's right. So it makes you wonder, like, how long was he alive? You know, because they they assume he had been alive for a number of years, just being eaten by these scarabs, but like. He also had time to write an inscription inside, which I think it said, death is only the beginning. Like, there's no light in there. <laughs> How did you do that? Was that the deal with the scarabs that they are supposed to eat him slowly? Yeah. I yeah, don't yeah, think yeah. anyone told the scarabs because they seem to be about their business in this movie. <laughs> they love to chompa chompa. Yeah, maybe when the lights go out, maybe that's when the scarabs are like, oh, it's dark, it's nighttime, we'll just a little nibble. You know, I don't want to eat after seven or whatever. It goes straight to my hips. Because, yeah, every time we see the scarabs attack... Someone else's movie. They just they go to town. They're insatiable. Yeah, but while this is happening, the League of Ordinary Gentlemen, they're going to find some treasure of their own. They're going to find another sarcophagus, but they're not going to be happy with just finding some dead guy. And so uh, one of the dudes is going to kick it. He's going to be all mad. And that's going to reveal a panel, and there's going to be five jars in there. And they're so thrilled about these jars. Like, I don't know anybody who would be like, oh, boy, jars. Yeah, in fact, they're like bragging in front of Rick, like, would you find Rick? We got some fucking jars, man. These jars are going to earn us a fortune on the jar market, I guess. Evelyn is going to decide to take matters into her own hands, and she's going to uh, one night steal the Book of the Dead from the other camp. And as she's reading from the Book of the Dead aloud, she's going to accidentally awaken the mummified Imhotep, who seems to briefly confuse Evelyn with Anksu Namun. The expeditions flee back to Cairo, and Imhotep follows them with the help of Benny, who was agreed to serve him. (laughs) He regenerates his full strength and human form, that's going to be Imhotep, not Benny, by killing the members of the American expedition and brings the ten plagues back to Egypt. Meanwhile, Evelyn learns that Terence is also working with the Magi. Terence being Dr. Bay? Dr. Bay, the very same, the the, the idiot that burned the map. I guess he wasn't such an idiot after all, He's, he's an idiot like a fox. Does that make sense? I hope not. But yeah, David, first of all, I got to give a shout out here because when Evelyn reads from the Book of the Dead, how does the mummy uh, show itself? Hand burst out from the underground. That's a classic move. Nothing but respect for my mummy king. Yeah, but this is unfortunately going to awake Imhotep and Imhotep's going to want to gather pieces to help him regenerate. So the first person he's going to find is Burns. Uh, Burns is played by, I couldn't care less. I don't know. I'm not going to pull it up. But you know, Burns is one of the League of Ordinary Gentlemen. And he gets his eyes and tongue taken by Imhotep. And we've said it throughout this movie, or, you know, we've we've sort of danced around it, that this movie is mostly made for children and families. But if I'm a child seeing this, this is staying with me forever. This is one of those large, march, formative, scary moments. Yeah, I could definitely, if like a 10-year-old saw this, I could see him him or her running out of theaters, like clutching their face. Don't take my eyes, mommy. <laughs> but, because the mommy, right, He's he's like a... You know, for the time, not a bad-looking CGI monster, but he's like a, you know, a a decrepit corpse monster-looking zombie thing. And so he needs some fresh body parts, and he's he's taking him off this league of ordinary gentleman, killable guy, Burns. And so he does take his eyes and his tongue. But this is going to unleash the Ten Plagues, and the first one, I believe, is going to be more scarabs or locusts or some kind of chomping bug. And they're going to swarm the town and this is going to be another mark out moment for me because the swarm of bugs is coming in pretty quick order and it's going through the town and just like where there was a person there is no longer a person that's how quickly these bugs are eating them and so i wanted like one 
graphic kill or one signature kill. And there's one guy going down the steps, you know, trying to run away from the bugs and he gets chomped. But as the bugs leave, they still leave behind the sort of desiccated corpse that's basically lying on his back with his feet and hands up in the air like a bug. I was very satisfied. This is going to be another Mark Ad moment for me. Maybe the bugs back in the day were just used to eating a lot of people. And these are just like super hungry bugs. Although, do these bugs live for thousands of years without eating anything? Are these ma- I guess that's the question, David. Are these bugs magical? Oh, yes, they have to be. I figure they've been touched by some of Imhotep's powers, but generally... They're a level of flesh-eating scarab, just not this degree. Yeah, I guess because they sur- some of them survive like encased in jewels for all those years. So I guess they are magic bugs. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. Mixed emotions of finding out the bugs are magic. But David, at some point, Benny is cornered, fucking Benny, by the Imhotep. And Benny, I don't know if this is like something he has or if it's like treasure he's stolen, but he's got a bunch of different like, uh, on like a chain or necklace, he's got a bunch of like different like little religious symbols, like a little Buddha, like a little cross. And as the mummy approaches, he's trying, he's like, oh, don't, he's trying all these like different languages and different religious symbols, you know, like, like the way a cross would ward off a Dracula when that doesn't stop the mummy, he's like on to the next religious symbol, which I got to say, I thought this was, I thought it was a good gag. I thought so too. This was the only quality thing Benny does in the movie, but it's a fun gag. I, you know, it hadn't even occurred to me that he might've stolen those over the years and he just had a collection. I, in my mind thought... Oh, this happens to him all the time. He, you know, he's confronted with evil spirits. So, yeah, why not have these? But uh, however we got here, I was very happy. I was not happy that he did not die. I want to see Benny die. But eventually he pulls out the Star of David and he says something in Hebrew. And the mummy stops. He's like, the language of the slaves? Oh, cool. All right. Cool. This mummy sucks. <laughs> Just in case you for a second were like into this mummy. He fucking sucks. And so he's like, hey, slave. That's an interesting word. Benny, I have an opening for a slave. Would you like to be mine? And so Benny, I guess he becomes the Renfield of the mummy, his little human, uh, what's the word, familiar. And so later on, so so Benny doesn't, not only does he not die, he's now like in every scene with the mummy for the rest of the fucking movie. Oh, Benny! But we are going to head to Cairo, Fort Brighton. There's a storm coming, so we got to figure out whether or not we want to get out of here. You know, we're we're packing bags, we're getting ready to leave. Evie doesn't want to leave, though. She wants to stick around and, and you know, beat this thing. Rick wants to take off, though. Yeah, Rick wants to take off. And they're, while they're having a drink, kind of like licking their wounds in the bar of this Cairo hotel, they bump into this guy, Captain Havelock, who's like an old British dude. He's like, oh, chip, chip, cheerio. Everything sucks. I wish I had died in the war with my friends. Oh, man, we're we're meeting this guy way too late into the movie to care about him. You know, you, you find out later he is going to be integral for a brief moment. You know, we're going to need his plane because he, he still craves action. He still craves a hero's death. I'd rather they just found a plane than intro this guy. I'd rather just not deal with this guy at all. I liked his payoff later, but at this point in the movie, I, I'm a dummy, I guess. I wasn't like, oh, this is Chekhov's pilot. I just was like, oh, this is like a, a British... Old British pilot, they're just throwing the movie for a couple laughs, which I don't know why I thought that because this wasn't funny. It was just a weird little scene. But David, someone else is at that hotel. Burns, the guy who no longer has eyes or a tongue, he's like talking to somebody. And then the camera pans over. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Benny and the fucking mummy. It's like a very casual reveal like, oh, there's a mummy in the hotel. Because I think the mummy, you know, he's dressed like the Invisible Man pretty much, just like uh, overcoat. I believe. I don't know if he has sunglasses on. He might as well. But it was an odd, unfancy reveal that uh, there's a mummy up in this bitch. 
It's funny, you're you're right, it did waste a spooky moment because talking about it right now, there was a fucking mummy in that hotel. This should have been a terrifying moment. But I was too busy terrified by the fact that Burns was still alive. Because I, I know they mentioned it upon the second viewing, but upon first viewing, you know, you take the guy's eyes and tongue, he's a goner in my estimation. So to see him back at the hotel, bandages over his eyes, struggling to talk because he has no tongue. If the if he has any kind of friends there, put him out of his misery. Do not let him live like this. I don't know, David. He's still a handsome guy. Sure, he doesn't have eyes or a tongue. He can still fuck. But David, back when they were at Hamunaptra, you know, both crews of, of uh, treasure stealers, the plague started, including a plague of locusts. But David, now all of a sudden, everyone in this bar is taking a drink. Ooh, they all spit out their drinks. It's because all the liquids in this place turned to blood. It's another plague. Now, was the plague written at the time when alcohol was invented? Because, like, if it's going to turn the water to taste like blood, I get that. But, like, this is just Crown Royal. Like, what do you have to do with, what does this curse have to do with anything, Crown Royal? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. At first, when they spit it out, I thought they were going to be like, oh, this booze sucks. But, uh, but no, it was, it was blood, which, you know, tasty, tasty blood. I mean, to each their own. But this is going to be where our gang, our treasure hunters, they're going to find out that Dr. Bay is one of the Magi. Oh, okay. This is why he burned the map. This is why he was such a klutz. Uh, I felt dumb. This is where I, I was a bit chagrined in this moment. Chagrined or non-chagrined, David. Uh, I like this actor and I was happy to see that he's continuing in the movie. But David, if you look at him, he's got a pretty high killable score. The more he decided, like, I'm going to hang out in this adventure too. I was like, mm, are you, buddy? Old man with a secret? I won't see you at the end of the movie. No, but Rick, Evelyn, Jonathan, and Terrence, a.k.a. Dr. Bay, meet Ardith. Ardith, I believe, is the leader of the Medjai, right? Mm -hmm. That's right, yes. They meet that dude at the museum. And Ardith has got some ideas as to what's going on. That's right. He's going to hypothesize that Imhotep wants to resurrect Anksunamun by sacrificing Evelyn. But Evelyn believes that if the Book of the Dead brought Imhotep back to life, the Book of Amun-Ra can kill him again, and deduces the book's whereabouts in Hamunaptra. Imhotep corners the group with an army of slaves. Evelyn agrees to accompany Imhotep if he spares the rest of the group. Although Imhotep does not honor his word, Rick and the others fight their way to safety, with Terrence sacrificing himself to ensure their escape. But yeah, our heroes know something is up, and they go back to the room to like get the fuck out of there. And when they go back to the room, they find Benny sneaking around. And so O'Connell's like, Benny, you piece of shit. And he wants some info out of Benny. And so the way he gets it is he holds Benny, you know, lifts him in the air by his, his, his shirt collar. But O'Connell is lifting Benny closer and closer to the, the blades of a ceiling fan. Oh, my <laughs> God. David, uh, did they make ceiling fans differently? Were they made out of razor-sharp blades back in the 1930s? Because, David, my ceiling fan right now couldn't cut through Play-Doh. You know, it could basically knock over a, a Jenga tower. It could maybe knock a, a loaf of French bread out of your hands, but it certainly wouldn't break the bread. Yeah, you're not making Twilight Zone the movie with this ceiling fan, but I almost wished that they had had a payoff to that where, you know, he's holding Benny up to the ceiling fan, and he, he gets the answers out of him. And then he just lifts him up in the fan. You have that satisfying, like, tuk, 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 that kind of, like, wooden noise. Yeah, maybe that's how you get Benny to talk. Benny's like, I'll never talk. And his, like, whatever Hungarian accent. <laughs> I refuse to believe it's accurate. And then, yeah, I lift him up to the fan. Let the fan blades work him over like a speed bag. Duka, 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 duka. And then Benny would <laughs> be like, no more. It's sort of annoying. I'll talk. As much as I don't like Benny, the interrogation scene, this whole ransacking of the room, it's pretty satisfying. It starts off very satisfying because... Rick comes into the room, sees Benny going through everything, and just straight up throws a chair at him. <laughs> like, it was unexpected. Lands flush on him. I was, I LOL'd. I was very into that. I also remember that chair thing, and I also did like it. 
at this point in my notes, I wrote down punch up, kill Benny, which crazy to think that I had it that low on the list. <laughs> I think I wanted him to die so many times. Maybe that was the point where I was just like, fucking kill him already. Actually, it's funny. Uh, I'm going to do a command F. I wanted to see how many times I typed Benny sucks in, in my notes. Six. I typed Benny sucks six times in my notes. Nice. So Rick gets the information from Benny. And meanwhile, let's check in on the League of Ordinary Gentlemen, who I guess we've decided to partner with them, more or less. It's just, you know, let's all put our backs together and stay alive. So the two remaining Ordinary Gentlemen, you've got Daniels and you've got Henderson. They're tasked with keeping an eye on Evie. Make sure she stays in her room while Jonathan and Rick go to retrieve the book. But Daniels is like, nuts to this. I'm going to go down and get a drink. And Henderson's just going to stay behind. And practice, like, pulling his gun out and aiming at the jar, this priceless, valuable jar, but he's just drawing on it. And then Imhotep's going to come in, kill Henderson, try to make his way to Evie. Get, again, this is going to be another silhouette kill. You're going to see Henderson's shadow on the wall, and then you're just going to see, like, his body sucked clean of all fluids and muscles. This is also very cool. I'm into it. Yeah, I did not mark out, but I liked it. I was like, you know what? That's fun. That's an inventive way. I mean, it did seem a little like silly and cartoony. Yeah, but I liked it, I guess. The fact that it was cartoony did not take away from my enjoyment of it. Thumbs up. But Imhotep is going to kill Henderson. He's going to sneak into Evie's room by turning into sand and sliding in through the keyhole. And he's going to, to try to abduct Evie. But then Mac, here comes a cat, a pretty white cat to save the day. And as we all know, cats are protectors or something to ancient Egyptians. This was very satisfying. They used the cat to scare away Imhotep. I can't wait for cats to get used more in this movie. I'm saying that now because cats don't get used more in this movie. Yeah, they say something like that cats are guardians of the underworld as if they're... So Imhotep thought that that cat was there to drag him back down. Uh, this mummy's losing a couple points here. This is just a fucking cat, you stupid mummy. Get it together. <laughs> but David, another plague has hit the town and it is the plague of mind control sores or something. Because now everyone who has this um, face disease, I guess, is now like, Imhotep, Imhotep. They're all zombies now, David. Yeah, they're not the undead. They're just unwell. They just have fucked up faces now. But I guess this counts as a plague. Uh, Jonathan's going to be trapped within the within the city walls, uh, and he's going to get overrun by this zombie army. This is very cute because in order to blend in, he just decides to pretend to be zombified. And so he starts chanting along with them. They're chanting Amotep and he blends in. As much as I don't particularly care for Jonathan throughout this movie, he's fine. I wish he could have been better, but this is probably a standout moment for him in this movie. I really enjoyed it. In case you forgot who Jonathan is, he is Evelyn's uh, foppish, dandy older brother. And yes, David, anytime a living person pretends to be a zombie and the zombie buys it, uh, I buy it too. I I always like it. I've seen it in <laughs> Shaun of the Dead, Walking Dead. I'm a fan of it every time. But the fact, there's something about it too. Like, cause I mean, he didn't like smear blood on himself or facial, uh, put some, you know, fake sores on his face. They just walked up to him and they're like, Imhotep. And he's like, Imhotep. And the zombies are like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Man. <laughs> like, I don't know why. The fact that they're easily fooled uh, is enjoyable. But here comes Imhotep. You know, he's he's got his army of the unwell he wants those jars. And I'm surprised because, you know, because Rick and the gang are fighting off this army of the unwell as best they can. Here comes Amotep. He wants his jars. 
which the League of Ordinary Gentlemen still have. Like, how quickly do you think you'd put two and two together and say, you know, I bet this mummy's probably after his treasure. We should probably get rid of some of this treasure. For those guys, it does not surprise me. They they uh, didn't know what was in the jars. So that didn't shock me. But yeah, they, they do die kind of one by one. And yeah, I think the final League of Extraordinary, excuse me, Ordinary Gentlemen Killables, whatever you want to call them, I think he dies by falling off a Jeep and then gets... Uh, chomped or murdered it doesn't even matter maybe an alligator eats him for all i fucking care i mean like you saw his death coming a mile away i would be stunned if anybody in the theater was like no what i thought he was gonna make it that guy had mummy two and three written all over him i look forward to a lifelong friendship between him and rick o'connell but david at some point imhotep and his legion of the unwell they corner our heroes imhotep is like give me evelyn i'm gonna make her into my girlfriend i'm gonna use her bod to resurrect my girlfriend and Terrence, Dr. Bay, is like, no, let her go. Live to fight another day. Actually, I don't know if it was him or if it was Ardith. I think it was Ardith. Ardith said live to fight another yeah, day. Yeah, Ardith. Good advice from Ardith. And so the mummy, just by the way, Arnold Voslo, very smug. He's just got this like smug, evil look down the whole time. He's giving Rick a look like, just like a girl, what's up, man? Rick is like, I'll see you again. Which, Rick, shut the fuck up, okay? What are you trying to do? He's like, oh, you know what? I will kill you now. And so he commands his legion of the unwell to kill them all. As the mummy slowly walks away, like a Bond villain, he's like, I'll assume they're dead and I won't turn my head over my shoulder to check. And so our heroes here are trying to fight them off. David, uh, they decide to go down a sewer, right? A manhole cover. They open it up to try to go down into a Cairo sewer to make their escape. But the curator, Dr. Terrence Bay, he's like, you guys run. I'll sacrifice myself. But David, if, if Dr. Terrence Bay had just been like, whoop, and like gone right down the manhole cover... Uh, he would, it would have been fine. He had plenty of time to escape. These guys are slow. He kind of died for no fucking reason. He kind of died for no fucking reason. And he kind of died immediately after we find out that there's a badass Dr. Bay that we could have been seeing this whole time. Like there's a lot of real estate in this movie between the time we find out that he is working with the Magi and we see him as this badass protector. Like he pulls this fucking sword out of nowhere. And I'm like, you had this the whole time. We could have been... You could have been fighting back with us. Like, it was a reveal for the sake of the movie, but I really wanted more Dr. Bay, badass protector. I will say that when he sacrificed himself and the unwell overtook him, and I, I guess they ate him? I don't know what the fuck they were doing. They weren't hungry for brains. The entire crowd of unwell was like, let me see the murder. They all like, you know, like, I want to check this out too. They all lost interest in Rick O'Connell. So in a way, I mean, I still think they could have outrun them 100%. But however... It wasn't effective, like, oh, okay, he's dead. Where's Rick O'Connor? I lost him. Him <laughs> brains. So, I mean, I'll say I'll upgrade his death from needless to semi-needless. But, Mac, that's going to leave Rick, Jonathan, and Ardeth, and they're going to recruit Captain Winston Havelock, a member of the Royal Air Force, with a death wish to fly them back to Hamanoptra in pursuit of Imhotep. However, Imhotep magically conjures a sandstorm, crashing their plane and killing Havelock. Rick, Jonathan, and Ardeth locate the Book of Amun-Ra in Hamunaptra while Imhotep prepares to sacrifice Evelyn, also bringing Aksu Namun's mummified remains to life as part of the ritual. So David, I know you were not super into Captain Havelock, but when our heroes go to him and ask him to use his plane, they have this exchange. Is it dangerous? Well, you probably won't live through it. Hi, Joe. Do you really think so? Well, everybody else we bumped into has died. Why not you? What's the, uh, what's the challenge then? Rescue the damsel in distress, kill the bad guy, and save the world. 
Oh. <laughs> Winston Havelock, at your service, sir. <laughs> and the fact that he was so excited about dying, David, I legitimately had a laugh out loud moment here. I, <laughs> I was like, oh, I wants to die. It, his, his character is consistent. He was like, so like, yes, this will be great. Like, it's just so funny how eager he was to bite it. He was done with living, David. Life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. I think Jojo Siwa said that. There was something really satisfying. As much as I'm not particularly fond of Captain Havelock, it made me wish that we had established this character earlier. Like, we see him in the first act. He's a drunk. We see him, you know, we check in on him throughout the movie. And this would be his moment of redemption because the job is this. Rescue the damsel, kill the bad guy, save the world. It's a pretty good way to sell this mission. Havelock's into it. I'm into it, too. This was okay. They take off in this airplane. And this airplane's a two-seater. Rick, our hero, gets one of the seats. And, of course, the pilot, Captain Havelock, gets the other. And then Ardeth and Jonathan have to be strapped to the wings of the airplane, which that seems like it sucks. That's a giant no thanks. The fact, how many bugs or just like how much sand did they eat while being flown on the wing of this airplane? Well, here's the thing. It's a tale of two passengers because you look at Jonathan, he's lashed to one wing and he's miserable as he should be. But then you cut over to Ardeth. I can't get a read on Ardeth. I can't tell if it's that sort of screaming terror or if he's screaming with glee because he really has this look like he's just, he's enjoying I'm on a plane. I'm flying. Like, there's something very charming about Ardeth's reaction. Yeah, he, he did seem to not to not hate it. But that's how our heroes are traveling. The villains, Benny, uh, Imhotep, and the captured Evelyn, they're traveling via sandstorm. Because the mummy, I guess, turned into a sandstorm, Imhotep, and he's, like, transporting him out there. And the way they land there, David, I just felt like a PBS kids show or something. <laughs> like, like Miss Frizz? Or who's the... Person traveled by the magic school bus. Did it ever turn into uh, a sandstorm? I'm, I'm certain it did. Probably in the later episodes. If it didn't, huge, huge blown opportunity. But David, they fly this airplane like way too close to Imhotep. And so he launches a, a another sandstorm to try and like crash the airplane. And the way he does is, David, is basically have an orgasm face. Like just like, oh, I'm coming. Oh, I'm coming. This, uh, this sandstorm, this desert twister. And sure enough, it crashes the airplane, David. The airplane crashes kind of comically, like as if, you know, it was set dress, not like an actual explosion. Captain Havelock should have lived, David, but he dies. He dies with a smile on his face. Oh, the two people lashed to the wing should have been split into eight separate pieces, but they're fine. But meanwhile, Havelock gets his hero's death. But this is this is fun. You know, it's a plane outrunning a giant wall of sand. It's more neat stuff. The plane crashes. It sinks into some quicksand. My first reaction was, this is a bit silly, but then, you know, connecting the dots on it, quicksand is very much a children's device. <laughs> so for for quicksand to appear in this movie, it is right at home here. Of course, it's going to be a dangerous element. I was into it. But so far, David, on the mountain, this and Prey, like we've had two quicksand encounters. I did not know that quicksand could be in the desert. I thought it was in other places, but you know what? I'm not going to question the mummy. I'm not going to, this movie knows its stuff. It, it clearly is like historically accurate. That blasted Imhotep created quicksand. Oh, I bet he fucking did. I wouldn't put it past that smug prick. So plane crashes. Havelock is dead. We're going to end up down in the bowels of the city because this is where Imhotep is going to take Evelyn to be sacrificed. He ties her to this slab. Here comes some zombified priests. Mac, this is going to be another formative moment, I'm sure, uh, with Evie tied up and all these priests pawing at her. This is a low-key, very horny movie. Yeah, David, I think this movie probably caused a lot of uh, Egyptian uh, zombie priest uh, groping fetish. Uh, 
do we see so often today in modern pornography? Yes, with the zombie priest stuck in the dryer. Yeah, or the incest uh, one where the zombie priest uh, took the Viagra, and the only it's up <laughs> it's up to the zombie priest's stepsister to help him out. It's good talking to you, Mac. But our heroes, David, they're they're trying to fight off uh, these zombies. But some moment, Ardith, he says this to our heroes: "Save the girl, kill the creature." sacrifices himself he's like i'm gonna hold off the bad guys because these like doors are slowly closing and for all we know Ardith is dead he's like trapped behind these walls facing way too many zombies so yes now it's just down to jonathan and rick o'connell i didn't think that Ardith was a killable but maybe i guess he was i guess he was but man what a way to go out because it's a it's a hero's death he's he ended up with a shotgun which you know seems incongruous with the way he's been handling himself up until then but man he looks good with a shotgun he's blowing away these priests it's a cool moment, and it's it's so cool that it made me realize how underused Odette Fair was in this movie. Like, he could have been the sort of Han Solo of the group. He could have been this, you know, devil-may-care kind of sexy dude, but we use him a few times, and we get one good death out of him, and it's not even really a death? I, I don't know, movie. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I worked in a movie theater when Mummy Returns was out, and I remember him being in the movie. But watching this, it's like, I guess it was a fever dream, because there's no way he survives uh, a death we don't see. But David, then when our heroes then encounter Evelyn and Aksunamon and Imhotep, uh, there's a fight there. And one of the, the combatants, David, it's... Aksuna Moon's mummy is now going around like trying to trying to kill people. So now, David, we got another mummy on our hands. And this mummy, because we it's a character who's, who's given a name, it's a it's a tougher mummy. So it looks like our heroes have got a, their work cut out for them in the, in this in this fight. Oh my god! Again, more terrifying moments for seven year olds watching this movie where Aksuna Moon's mummified body uh, comes up and starts fighting. Scary stuff, guys. But this action set piece here with you know Rick fighting off some of the mummy priests. Evelyn trying to avoid getting murdered by Aksuna Moon. This is kind of like the big action set piece of the movie. And it is when like the action starts taking kind of a, a different tone. Because prior to this, I mean, you know, Rick's been like punching or he's been like shooting, but there's been nothing kind of like spectacular about it. But this is, I think, like it, the best scene in the movie. Like he's doing different things. You know, he's fighting bad guys that can now like climb on walls or disappear. It, it's it's a different threat than what we've seen. Because I, I would describe the action in this movie as kind of monotonous. I say that that makes it seem like I'm bored by it. I was not. It just, there's a lot of the same kind of like fighting in it. But when you include stuff like, you know, trying to outfly an evil sandstorm, I mean, that's not punching or kicking or whatever. That's different kinds of action. But I, I did like this action uh, set piece, including the, the wall climbing mummy zombies. It's tough to not sound like you're being critical of this movie or, you know, you and me. The action in this movie feels limited. And again, I'm going to go back to if, if they just had a little bit more money or something like that. But this is going to be the centerpiece of the movie. And this is satisfying for me. This is, in fact, I'm going to mark out with the combat between Rick and the zombie priest. Brendan Fraser does a really good job of choreography against nothing. You know, he's fighting against these CGI mummies who are going to be put in later, but he interacts with them really well. There's a lot of comedic moments. There's one where he pulls his sword back to kill one zombie. He ends up getting another zombie's head stuck on that sword and still kills the other zombie with it. I'm going to consider this a mark out moment. I was enjoying it in the moment, but as the days have gone by since I've watched it, it stands out as one of the more enjoyable moments of the movie. It stands out as a moment I would use to sell the movie to other people. I'm going to count this. But David Jonathan, he does have the the good book 
uh, the Bible? What's it called? The Book of Amun-Ra. <laughs> and they're like, Jonathan, read out of the fucking book. And so Jonathan starts reading at it, and he manages to call forth an army of super mummies, like super mummy warriors. However, this the, the super mummy warriors, you know, because Jonathan's bad at this book, they seem to be like marching towards Rick, right? So what what happens now? So Rick's going to manage to rescue Evelyn after a brutal fight with Imhotep's mummified priests and mummified soldiers. Anksun Amun's mummy is also slain during the melee. Evelyn reads from the Book of Amun-Ra, making Imhotep mortal, and he is fatally wounded by Rick. Imhotep degenerates back to his mummified form and descends into the Pool of Souls, vowing revenge. What really turns the tide here is Jonathan is able to read the part of the cover of the Book of Amun-Ra that makes it so the mummy super warriors turn against uh, Imhotep. And so Imhotep has to deal with them uh, as well, which gives Evelyn enough time to read the, the book. I found this action a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. You know, it was thrilling because it was building the tension as Imhotep is moving in on Rick. There's a moment where he basically unhinges his jaw. It's just his mouth is turning into a giant gaping maw, presumably to either eat Rick or swallow his soul. I'm not sure either way. But yeah, meanwhile, you've got Evie and Jonathan. They're rushing to get the, the translation right. Yeah, no, I'm very much into this. These spirits come down. It's like this uh, ghost chariot. They drive through Imhotep. And there's a moment where it's like... Oh, Okay, what did that do? What what does that matter to anything? But you find out it makes Imhotep mortal. The chariot drives away with Imhotep's force ghost. (laughs) But I like the when they drive away, Imhotep's kind of like, you fool! Like, imagine someone like trying to catch a hat that's blowing away. And then the last moment, you know, they're flailing after it. It blows away like out to sea. Like, you fucking dicks, that was my fucking soul. I can't get that fucking back. Like, it just, his frustration there. I thought was uh, super funny. And to add the dimension of like, you fucking dick, they're going to find out that was my soul. Like he's still trying to keep it secret. Like, oh no, I'm mortal now. As soon as he figures out what to do with that sword in his hand, I'm a dead man. But Rick's going to figure out what to do with that sword in his hand. And Imhotep is a dead man. And in case you needed reminding of what kind of movie this is, Imhotep's going to get stabbed in the gut with a sword. He is mortal now. Not a single drop of blood, not a wound, not a gash. He just... He covers his gut with both of his hands, and Imhotep is dead. And again, if that's the movie this is, I will dance with this movie. Yeah, I mean, it might have been kind of an anticlimactic kill. And he does go into this, like like you just said, a pool of souls. And I was looking at the special effect, and it, it does look kind of cheesy by today's standards. But you know what? It still, it does what it's supposed to do. I got the idea, you know, as you said earlier, the effects aren't bad. They're just kind of old in this thing. But yeah, it, it still, it worked for me. It did not, I noticed it, but it did not bother me. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. Like seeing Imhotep get devoured by a pool of souls, there's a version in my head that looks awesome and I didn't see it on the screen, but it's the limitations of the movie in 1999. I'm not I'm not too hung up on it. And by the way, Benny, if you're wondering what the fuck happened, where we haven't talked about this kind of while, did he die? No, no. At some point, Benny is like, fuck this, I'm out of here. I'm going to go steal some treasure for me. So Benny is just out looting, uh, in case you're wondering about Benny, which if you are wondering about Benny, why? Well, you know what? Let's find out. He's going to he's gonna be absconding with treasure. He's going to accidentally set off a booby trap while looting the city of its riches, and then he's killed by a swarm of flesh-eating scarabs as Hamunaptra collapses into the sand. Ardeth bids Rick, Evelyn, and Jonathan goodbye, and the trio rides away on a pair of camels, not realizing it is laden with Benny's stolen treasure. Oh, yeah, you're right. As they were driving away, there's like a little like animated glint. And at some point, Rick like picked up a sword that was in that tomb. And I feel like the sword was made of gold. So I just assumed it was Rick's sword. But I guess you're right. It was the treasure. Whoa, this movie's too smart for me, David. I think I'm too dumb for the mummy. I'm a mummy dummy. I'm a mummy 
Toby Mac. Second viewing, I caught the treasure in the back in the horse's pack. The movie ends. The the city collapses, which by the way, this is awesome. So this last chunk where Hamanoptra starts to collapse, basically the ceiling of the temple starts to come down. And if they don't get out of there, they're gonna get crushed. Benny gets trapped in darkness. Like he ends up getting stuck in the temple. He's trapped in there forever with these scarabs. Uh, the lights go out and you hear like these crunching noises where they're eating him. I really wanted to see it though. I really wanted to, I wanted proof of death on this one. But I'm I'm into this, you know, and at the very end, Rick and Evelyn, you know, they're looking at the remain the ruins of Hamanoptera. They're like, well, I guess, you know, I guess we didn't get the treasure this time. And Rick says something like, well, I wouldn't say that. I didn't realize he was talking about actual treasure. No, he wasn't. He was like, because um, Jonathan goes, we left empty handed. And then Rick says, uh, well, not, not all of us are empty handed. I'm going to get a handful of your sister here while I you know, make out in front of you. And then Jonathan says to the camel, like, oh, uh, I guess I'll just kiss this camel. Do you want a kissy wissy? Oh, fuck you, Jonathan. That's a quick punch up right there. I wish the camel had eaten Jonathan. But yeah, it was a, it was a weird like bragging about making out with this dude's sister right in front of him. Maybe that was his kink. Maybe he's like, I like... I like being a brother cucker or something like that. Ugh, I didn't like saying that, David. Well, we got now we got to buy brothercucker.net. Shit. <laughs> we sure don't. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Benny, to go back for a second, our heroes are trying to make it out of the tomb as these doors are closing. There's a bunch of scenes where like uh, a very heavy thing is slowly lowering, like, oh, Benny's going to get squished, but he doesn't get squished. He does get trapped. And you're like, well, I guess he's trapped in this tomb forever. How long until he runs out of oxygen? I guess it's going to be a while. And they're like, nope, here comes some scarabs like chomp him. So many scarabs, David. It's almost like the scarabs didn't like Benny. <laughs> I also, that was a punch up of mine. Uh, for I also wanted to see Benny's actual death. But at the same time, if I think about it in that terms, the, the scarabs hated Benny. I'll take that. I'll take it. That's very satisfying as well. Yeah. But David, as our heroes ride off in the distance, so does this movie because that, David, is the end of The Mummy. Or is it Mummy Returns? Out two years later. David, how many markout moments did you have in this thing? How many moms? I had three. It was a satisfying movie throughout. I had a big smile on my face. I was into it. But three moments really got me in the end. How about you, Mac? I would describe it the same way. I had a big smile on my face. Enjoyed it throughout. However, I never fully marked out. Uh, I did. There was some action in this movie that I thought was neat. However, there was no action moments that made me mark out. David, is this someone's favorite movie? Oh, my God. Yeah. This is... This is a perfect movie to own on VHS and just watch until the tape runs out. If you were between the ages of six and ten when this movie came out, this is one of your favorite movies. And 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 God bless you. It's a fucking awesome movie. I enjoy it. Yeah, I think definitely this is one of those movies where it's like if you were the age and saw us in theater at the right time, this movie's probably a great memory for you. And, you know, besides being a great memory, it's a lot of fun to watch. So yeah, I think it's definitely someone's favorite movie. All right, David, time for punch-ups. All right, David, we're the Ultimate Script Doctors. Everybody knows that. How would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? I'm going to ask this movie to be something it's not. First of all, I want an R-rated cut. Uh, again, this movie is what it is. I'm happy that it is what it is. But for me, I want to see some some gore. I want to see some kills. I want to see something a little more intense. My next punch-up, recast the supporting roles. Give this movie a few a few more bucks. Like, let's get, instead of whoever played Jonathan... What if that's Philip Seymour Hoffman? What if that's Sam Rockwell? You know, like, let's let's make these side characters mm. a little more memorable. What if the League of Ordinary Gentlemen was a collection of late 90s people that we could get attached to, but then also be really shocked when they died? 
I had a similar thought about the League of Ordinary Gentlemen, whereas instead of just setting them up as obvious killables, what if one of them was like friends with O'Connell or something like that, so the death actually meant something? But yeah, David, much like that piece of shit Steven Seagal uh, was a surprise death in the beginning of Executive Decision. Is that the name of that movie? That's that's right, yes. Yeah, maybe if we cast, I don't know, like Roger Moore or somebody as one of the uh, the killables, when they died early on, I'd be like, oh, fuck, Roger Moore got killed. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to expect from this movie. Oh, David, we forgot to mention that Ardith uh, lived. Uh, we were setting up that he definitely died. But yeah, he definitely lived. Oh, that's right. We were trying to play it, pretend we were stupid and thinking that he was dead. But yeah, he definitely lived. We didn't mention that earlier. So that's a punch-up for us. I would have fixed that in the podcast. My next punch-up, you you tease the cats as some, for, some sort of formidable foe against Imhotep. Where's the cat army? I want a third-act swarm of cats, like eating up scarabs, jumping on zombie priests, biting Imhotep. Uh, I, I want a cat army. My fourth and final punch-up, I like these characters. I like Brendan Fraser. I like Rachel Weisz. I like their chemistry together. I would like to see the further adventures of them. And I'm not talking about The Mummy Returns. I mean like a 2023. Okay, this is a Universal Pixar, so make it a Peacock exclusive. You know, what are they doing now? Maybe they go on one last adventure. Or also, where's the Magi movie? Like, that was a fun storyline. These protectors of this, you know, this lost city that they want to make sure stays lost forever. Watch there already be a Magi movie. It's probably one of the seven fucking mummy movies they've had, but that's going to be my punch up. You know, I, so I watched this on Peacock as well. And so after this movie finished, it auto played Mummy Returns. And as I was like finishing my notes, I caught like the first 10 minutes of Mummy Returns and you find out that Evelyn and Rick have a kid now. And so I, I haven't seen any of Mummy 3. So maybe Jet Li karate chops the kid's head off. I don't know. But I mean, if Brendan Fraser is like, man, I don't want to do another Mummy movie, just have him in a supporting role. Yes, why not have a movie starring his kid? And I think I'll throw this name at you, David. Glenn Powell. What if your boy Glenn Powell was uh, was young Alex um, Mummy Man? I don't know his name. O'Connell? Yeah. What are you doing, Mac? It's too late to be throwing gold at me like that. Are you fucking kidding me? He's, a, he's an even smarmier guy. Uh, but no, yeah. <laughs> Look, I, by the way, during our Top Gun Maverick episode, I came down pretty hard on Glenn Powell, but uh, I've, I've seen the movie or parts of it a couple more times uh, since we talked about he He grew on me. That uh, I'm, I'm a Glenn Powell head now. You should be. It's great. Uh, my punch-ups, I already said some. Get rid of that weird fucking kiss in the beginning. Some punch-ups I did not mention, David. I just want some bits. I got some bit punch-ups. So when our heroes are leaving the tomb as the doors are going down, uh, Jonathan stops. And he's like, oh, I, I want some of this treasure. And like, Jonathan, no time for treasure. Which, by the way, he totally could just like picked up one thing and carried it with him. And then as they're running out, he drops the golden book. Evelyn stops and she's like, I can't believe you fucking dropped the book, Jonathan. A direct quote. And they're like, Evelyn, no time. So Jonathan has stopped. Evelyn stopped. Rule of threes, David. I need Rick to stop for something. So I don't know what Rick stops for. Maybe like there's a mummy there drinking a drinking a really old bottle of uh, Glenlivet or something like that. Yeah, give Rick a reason to stop and then they haul him off. One more quick punch up. Maybe Jonathan is able to grab a little bit of treasure. And like, Jonathan, I'm sorry I didn't grab any treasure. And he's like, no, I did. Check it out. And he picks it up and he realizes it's like a fertility idol because it's just like a treasure. is like a little statue with a big old erect hog, veins and everything. And uh, Jonathan's like, ew, gross. And then like puts it down. They all laugh at him because they're homophobic back then. <laughs> punch, one more punch up. It goes back to the beginning. Another bit, right? The way that Imahotep gets cursed, it's because... You know, he has sex with the Pharaoh's wife, and they figured out because the Pharaoh's wife uh, has this body paint on her shoulder. And the Pharaoh sees that the body paint on her shoulder was smudged, and he's like, Someone's been touching you. And they're like, Oh, instantly it's the Pharaoh. 
how about this? The Pharaoh notices his wife, body paint on her shoulders smudged. And he's like, who touched you? And she's like, what? I just rubbed up against this vase. And the camera pans over. You see the vase. It does have a little body paint on it. And the Pharaoh's like, oh, okay. You had me going for a second. His eyes lower. He sees the body paint around her crotch, right? Super smeared. Then Imhotep mm-hmm, comes mm-hmm. in. His mouth just covered, <laughs> surrounded by body, with body paint. Like he ate ice cream and he just got it all over his mouth. You know what I mean, David? And then the pharaoh's like, ooh, and then that's when they kill him. I think that would have just been a, a slam bang. Sure, that'd be more like a Ferrelli Brothers movie than Steven Summers, whatever his name is. But there you go. Those are my punch-ups. I don't know how you managed to make me feel embarrassed for how quickly <laughs> I picked up on that note. Like, as soon as you said, yeah, the pain on her body, right? I was like, oh, yeah, he's going to go down on her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, David, we'll get it together because it's time to go into the Punch Mountain video store. All right, David, we splurge. We have three copies of The Mummy. So what shelves would you put this on? Because, David, this is an all-action video store. So when shelving this movie, David, what subsections of action uh, would you put these copies in? Okay, my first copy is going to go in 90s action. It, you know, it got in under the wire, but it feels very much like a 90s movie, and I'm, I'm into that. Uh, second one's going to be family action. This one is uh, a fun time for ages from 8 to 88. Uh, I, I think it's very good. So my third copy is going to go in creature monster action. It, this was uh, this used to be a horror movie back in the 30s, and the mummy is a creature. Yeah, this this fits. Do you think the Universal monsters have enough action movies or movies with action to warrant their own shelf? Like there was that Dracula movie with Luke Evans, or the Wolfman with um, Benicio del Toro, or the Mummy with Tom Cruise. Do you think that Universal monsters get their own shelf? That's interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna say no, just because I think the original ones aren't as actiony enough, and I think the modern ones. I don't know. I think you, I think you're better off just lumping them into creature monsters. Yeah, I feel like the modern ones don't have a particular flavor. Like I don't I I don't think you're getting something. Oh, is it a universal monster? Well, then in this case, it's no, it's the fucking same as those other ones. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, all those uh, shelving choices. If I had an extra copy, I'd put a shelf called Indiana Jones and Friends, right? Because there you could put your Indiana Jones movies and then your movies that feel like Indiana Jones movies. So like this one or maybe the Tomb Raider movies. I don't know. We haven't done one yet. But David, this, if you think about it, Mummy, Mummy Returns, Mummy Legend of the Dragon Emperor or whatever it's called, uh, Scorpion King 1. And I know there was a direct-to-video of Scorpion King 2. The Mummy might get its own section, my man. You're right. You're absolutely right. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I don't know why I'm sad about that. Until we get both Scorpion King movies in stock, maybe we'll save that shelf for later. <laughs> it's not, this is the it's a video store, right? It's not the um, it's not the warehouse of the Universe of the Lost Ark. We only got so much room. All right, David. Now it is time to honor our own vengeful god, Punch Mountain itself. It is time to reveal the place of the mummy on Punch Mountain, the definitive ranking of action movies. Uh, just to remind people, I'll say the top six movies are currently on Punch Mountain: Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, Jurassic Park, Hard Boiled, and Speed. And down at the bottom of the mountain, David. You know, right outside, there's like a French Foreign Legion. They're attacking some people. And right there is a shitty movie, Chappie, at 33. Because that's how many movies we've currently ranked. Full rankings available on punchmountain.com. David, before the mountain reveals to us its wisdom, where would you rank this movie? Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, you know, I think the bad news is I'm not so sure my enthusiasm is going to carry this movie very far up the mountain. It's an action movie mountain. There are a lot more movies that fit that bill. 
So it, it, I don't think it'll go very high. That's the bad news. The good news is we got to watch this movie. The good news is we got to watch a very fun two-hour movie. I hope more people watch it. I hope more people rediscover it. Uh, the people who kind of, you know, watched it in the background and never really gave it enough credit. This movie, you know, give it enough time and give it the right audience. This movie could end up being kind of a, a mid-range classic. You know, as far as the mountain goes, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to show. Yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you. I feel like one punch up we could have given this movie was give it a better stunt coordinator or a better action or fight coordinator because the lightness of the action in this movie, the lack of emphasis on it, for the most part, it does feel like it limits its ability to rise on the mountain because this movie, I feel like, is an adventure movie first. I would say it's like adventure action other than action adventure. If anyone cares about that, people don't. Because of that, even though it was a really fun movie, it's probably not going to get super high, I'd say, on the ranking of the greatest action movies of all time. Oh no, David, pick up your cats because you hear that noise as the rocks are falling off the face of the mountain. The golden letters revealing the position of the mummy are now appearing. It is now at number 20, which makes its neighbors 18 Gunpowder Milkshake, 19 Desperado, 20 The Mummy, 21 Top Gun Maverick, and 22 Birds of Prey. Uh, so there you go, David. Not bad company. For a very fun movie, I was happy to watch it. And look, if uh, if you were a fan of this movie in the last 20 years and you probably told me about it, I probably spit in your face, kicked you in the shins. I owe you an apology, whoever I did that to. Same here. I, I, I egg on my face for being down on this movie for so long. I'll tell you what, I'm pleasantly surprised by it showing on the mountain. And I hope it encourages more people to watch it. Because, yeah, right now we're in, I wouldn't say a Brendan Fraser renaissance after The Whale, but definitely some renewed interest in his uh, body of work. I'm sure a lot of a lot of Mummy fans are coming out of the, I was going to say woodwork, coming out of the desert right now. Yeah. Oh, David, you hear that sound? Oh, no, my sarcophagus. Well, your sarcophagus has a horn? Like an alarm? Yeah, it lets people know when, try, when people are trying to get out. But you have your, you know what, don't worry about it, David, because you're wrong. That was the horn calling us to action. Because on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the Anti-Defamation League. A leading anti-hate organization, the ADL's timeless mission is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. Today, ADL continues to fight all forms of anti-Semitism and bias using innovation and partnerships to drive impact. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Anti-Defamation League. Also, for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to our donation. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on air. For more information on the Anti-Defamation League or to donate directly to them, visit ADL.org. And that'll do it for another episode of Punch Mountain. Folks, don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacPlayComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week, from 1990 and directed by Stuart Gordon, it's our second Blue Shell pick. It's Robot Jocks. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.